Let's take God's Word and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9. I'm also going to ask you to find two additional passages of Scripture. Normally, when I make references elsewhere, I simply read it, but I want you to not only hear these two passages, but see them. The first is in Genesis, chapter 17, and the second is in Galatians, chapter 3. I know that's a little tricky. Make use of your bulletin, your church bulletin. There are lots of inserts there that you can use to mark Genesis 17, mark Galatians 3, and find, of course, Romans chapter 9, and the passage we're going to look at today. Uh, I think a couple months back, while we were still in chapter 8, I remarked once or twice that the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans constitutes the best chapter in the Bible. Anyone remember that? Yes, the best chapter in the Bible. No one has made me eat my words, so I guess uh, I must have a number of adherents out there. You agree with me? Romans 8, the best chapter in the Bible. It does pose a problem, doesn't it? We're no longer in chapter 8. We're now in chapter 9. Uh, letdown, uh, anticlimactic, so I thought um, it might be worthwhile to explain to you, share for a few moments, why I'm glad we're in chapter 9, in the ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And as I reflected on this, this past week, I came up with five reasons why I'm glad we're here nowhere else at this very moment. First reason is this, I'm glad because of Paul's unwavering celebration of doctrine. Paul's unwavering celebration of doctrine. Uh, you've noticed, assuredly, since chapter 1, Paul has been very doctrinal. Uh, he has emphasized doctrine all along. In this chapter, again, namely the ninth chapter, he cranks it up. Uh, simply put, he tackles some of the most difficult theological concepts found in the Bible in this chapter. Again, some of the most difficult, challenging <laughs> Theological concepts found in all of Scripture, Paul deals with them, handles them here. I'm glad for that reason. You know, a lot of people walking around today, a lot of professing believers walking around, and they would say, many of them would utter, um, I don't actually find doctrine to be that important. I don't know what all the fuss is about. I don't think doctrine is particularly important for my relationship with the Lord Jesus. I don't think it's particularly important uh, helpful when it comes to me growing spiritually, and I don't think it's particularly helpful when it comes to uh, growing a healthy church. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think there's too much emphasis on doctrine. I've heard it a number of times, that kind of sentiment. As a matter of fact, I've heard it taken a step further. On a number of occasions, uh, individuals um, have said to me, or at least in my hearing, uh, when doctrine has been raised, uh, this expression, very common, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. Uh, my response is always the same, stunned silence. I don't know where to go with that. I really don't, folks. You should care less. <laughs> you should care a great deal about doctrine. And the God we serve, the God we worship, His ways among men, and in particular the gospel. Let me explain it why, and I'll sum it up in one statement. Here it is. Blurry notions about God produce blurry Christians. That's all there is to it. Blurry, fuzzy notions about God can only create fuzzy, blurry Christians. It is that simple. I'm glad we're here in the ninth chapter because, Paul, because of Paul's unwavering celebration of doctrine. 
Second reason is this. I'm glad we're here because of Paul's staggering portrayal of God's greatness. Paul defines all things according to God's glory. He views the knowledge of God. So he views, he considers knowing God as an end in itself. So the question we often ask, what use is this to me? Paul doesn't really care at this juncture. Uh, Paul celebrates God. And the knowledge, the simple knowledge of God is an end in itself. Why? Well, let me put it to you by way of a question. What could be more practical than knowing God? What could be more helpful than knowing God? What could be more beneficial to the believer than simply knowing God and growing in our understanding of who he is? Crucial we hear that today. Crucial we stress that simple fact today. If we fail to proclaim God, his staggering greatness, if we fail to proclaim the God of Scripture, we only mislead people. Let me add to it. If we misrepresent the God of Scripture in order to attract people, we do not produce converts to God. We produce converts to an illusion. And there are millions of them today. Converts to an illusion. No, we declare God's matchless greatness as revealed, for example, here in Romans chapter 9. And we do so because God is glorified and magnified in Romans chapter 9. And we do so because the knowledge of God is practical, beneficial, and helpful in and of itself. So I'm thankful. I'm glad we're here because of Paul's staggering portrayal of God's greatness. Third reason I'm glad is this. Paul's irrepressible delight in God's sovereignty. Irrepressible. Can't contain himself. His delight, sheer joy in God's sovereignty. Paul insists upon God's rule over his creatures. Paul insists, unapologetic, adamant, that God's just liberty, God's just liberty in his governance of his creatures. Paul insists upon God's freedom to do whatever he pleases with his creatures. You see, we need to grasp this at the outset. God, not man, is Paul's starting point. Many of us don't get it. If you don't explain to me within 30 seconds what this has to do, many of us are lost. If it has to do with me, many of us are lost. How does it apply to me? If we, don't, if we can't get people to buy into, how does this involve me? How does this apply to me? Right at the outset, they're gone. That is not where Paul starts. Paul never starts with man. He starts with God. God is always his starting point. Paul's entire paradigm for thinking rests on this single premise. God is the only sovereign. God is the only sovereign. Brings me to the fourth reason why I'm glad we're here. Here it is. Paul's complete lack of enthusiasm for humanity. Yes, you heard me right. Paul's complete, utter lack of enthusiasm for humanity. He's going to say it a little later in this chapter. We are but clay. We are but clay. We are not at the center of the universe. Far too many people view enthusiasm for humanity as the essence of Christianity. 
Far too many people view enthusiasm for humanity as the center of our purpose, the essence of Christianity. Sadly, this is what drives most churches. Paul leads us away from celebrating ourselves to worshiping God. That's the fourth reason why I'm glad we're in Romans chapter 9. Complete lack of enthusiasm for humanity. And here's the fifth and final reason why I'm glad we're here. Nowhere else. Romans chapter 9. Paul's assertion that the doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. Wow. Paul's assertion that the doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. I've chosen my words carefully. Why? Many years ago, I was in it. Right up to my neck. Uh, preaching on some of these themes and took a lot of opposition. The, the, the response was actually quite spiteful at times. And I remember on one occasion an individual saying to me, why don't, you simply, why don't you preach the simple gospel? Why don't you just stick to the simple gospel? And my response was, I thought I was. There is no simple gospel apart from the doctrine of election. Why? Apart from the doctrine of election, however you slice it, folks, you are left with justification by works. And Paul makes it clear. He makes it abundantly clear in this chapter that the doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. Without the doctrine of election, I am forced to believe that my salvation is ultimately determined by me. In this chapter, into the 10th and into the 11th, Paul Pounds away at our, my most treasured assumption. Namely, it's all about me. That is my most treasured assumption. And Paul will not give any ground. He is persistent. No, my friend, it is not all about you. It is all about God. It is about a God who is free to do as he pleases with his, cre his creatures. Paul makes it clear. That it is impossible to preserve the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without the doctrine of election. They're tied together, and we dare not separate them. More on that a little later. There you have it. Romans chapter 9. Maybe not the best chapter in the Bible after Romans chapter 8, but a pretty good chapter. And plenty of reasons to celebrate why we are here. Plenty of truths we should be looking for. And we should come with great expectation and anticipation that the Spirit of God, through the proclamation of the Word of God, might speak to us, opening our eyes even more. Opening our ears even more. Softening our hearts, certainly. Even more to embrace this glorious God that is revealed here in really unparalleled fashion. Not just chapter 9. Again, it continues into the 10th and really comes to a, a climax in the 11th chapter. Follow along now as I read our text under consideration. The first 13 verses. Paul begins, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What are we going to do with this? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to note three movements, three movements, three acts, if you like, three acts in a play, three movements. The first, I'm going to be brief because we considered it in some detail last Sunday. It's simply this, the dilemma. Paul begins the chapter by acknowledging a dilemma, a problem. I should qualify that. An apparent dilemma. So what appears to be a problem. The problem resides in what appear to be two irreconcilable facts. The first fact is this. The Israelites, ethnic Jews, are accursed, cut off from Christ, the vast majority of them. They've rejected the Lord Jesus. They're cut off from the Lord Jesus. They are accursed. Paul makes that clear in the first three verses. The second fact is this. The Jews' privilege. So they're an accursed people, the vast majority of them. And the vast majority of them, in addition to being accursed people, they are a privileged people. And so Paul mentions in verses 4 and 5, eight privileges. Paul knows this is an issue. He, he, he made reference, just brief reference to it, way back in chapter 3. He's only dealing with it now at this juncture. The dilemma is this. Okay, the Jews, ethnic Jews, Israelites, accursed yet privileged. Privileged yet accursed. That creates an apparent dilemma for me. Because if they are God's privileged people, then why are they accursed? If they're God's chosen people, why are they cut off from God? If the promises, Abrahamic promises were given to them, that means the promises have failed. That means God's word has failed. Now, this is where it gets very personal because I've just heard what Paul has said at the end of chapter 8. Concerning my identity in the Lord Jesus, those whom he foreknew, he glorified. And so I know I'm secured in Jesus. And Paul celebrates this great fact at the beginning of chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He ends the chapter with this great, equally great fact. There is no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that all sounds good. But I'm looking out there at the vast majority of the Jews. And here's what I'm concluding. They're privileged yet accursed. Well, God's word has obviously failed in relation to them. Well, if it has failed in relation to them, it can fail in relation to me. 
So whereas what Paul says in the eighth chapter might look real good on paper, I'm filled with all sorts of doubts because the harsh reality is all around me. You picture an early Christian living in the city of Rome. There's a synagogue in town. There are thousands, if not tens of thousands of Jews, and all but a small handful have rejected the gospel. So this is tangible to a Gentile Jew. Early church, Rome, somewhere around 50 AD, 60 AD. This is tangible. This is real. This is a problem. This is personal. Because God's faithfulness is at stake, and my security as a believer is at stake. That is the dilemma. We move into the sixth verse and we have the solution. The solution has three parts. We're obviously in the first beginning in verse six. The second begins way ahead. Chapter 11, verse one. The third begins in chapter 11, verse 25. Don't you worry, sit comfortably. We're months away from those. We're only in the first part, dealing with the first part. And Paul's going to get off on a tangent here or there. He's going to deal with a lot of issues coming at him. And so he's going to stick with this first part of his answer all the way through to the 10th chapter. But it's summed up in that opening statement in verse 6. See, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, what word is he specifically thinking of? I asked you to find, did I not, Genesis chapter 17. It's all summed up beautifully here. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 7. Here's the word of the Lord. Here's the word that Paul has primarily in view. This is the promise burned upon his brain, his consciousness as a Jew. Here it is, Genesis 17, verse 7. God speaking. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. That's Abraham. God speaking to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Ooh, that's good. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. That is the word of God. Well, it's failed. Obviously. Are you getting the dilemma? It's failed. We're back in the first century. We're looking around, and 99% of the Jews have rejected the gospel, and 99% of the Jews are now accursed. They're cut off from the Lord Jesus. Something has separated them from God's love. They are no longer God's people. God is no longer their God. Well, I can only arrive at one conclusion, and this really is troubling for me because it, because it then bears directly on my standing before God. I can only arrive at one conclusion. The word of God has failed. The promise of God has failed. Dare I say, God must have changed his mind. Paul's response, his solution. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Why, Paul, tell us. We're sticking with his solution to the dilemma. For, or because, here it is. Not all 
who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Say it with me. There are two Israels. Don't stare at me. That's what he is saying in black and white in the text. Not all who are descended from Israel. Not all of Israel's, Jacob's, physical descendants actually what? Belong to Israel. Therefore, there must be two Israels. There is a physical and there is a spiritual. In case you missed it, he repeats himself just using different language. Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so just as there are two Israels, there are the physical descendants of Jacob, and there are the spiritual descendants, there is likewise these two types of sons of Abraham. There are those who are physical offspring, and there are those who are spiritual offspring. It shouldn't surprise us, folks. It shouldn't surprise us because it's the third time in this epistle Paul's made the same point. It's the third time. Go back to the second chapter. Look at what he says there. Romans chapter 2. He makes it clear. Verse 28. What does he say? Follow along. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So again, there are two Israels. There are two types of sons of Abraham. There are two Jews. Uh, there are the physical Jews, Israelites. And there are the spiritual Jews, Israelites. He makes it the point for the second time in chapter 4. Here he, he adds something very nuanced but extremely important. But look at what he says now in the fourth chapter, verse 11. He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He was justified before he was circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Those are Gentile believers. So that righteousness would be counted them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised Jews who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So again, his point is clear. He sums it up there in the ninth chapter. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You need to differentiate, is Paul's point. We have, yes, his physical ethnic descendants. That is true. But they don't all actually belong to Israel. What is the Israel in view? Those who have undergone a spiritual circumcision, those who walk in the same faith as Abraham, therefore it is a spiritual Israel. Now I asked you to find Galatians chapter 3. Can you handle it? Galatians chapter 3. 
And Paul brings such clarity to the entire discussion here. I don't think it needs much commentary. You look at what he says in the 16th verse of Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham. What promises? I just read you a summation out of Genesis 17. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Here's the question. What do we mean by offspring? Paul tells us. It does not say and to offsprings. Referring to many. But referring to one. And to your offspring. Who is Christ. So the promises were made to whom? The offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham is whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. It gets even better. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So go back to Romans 9. Oh, the word of God has failed. The word of God has failed. Ethnic Jews, privileged but accursed, God's word has failed. Paul's solution, no, 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 back, back it up just a little. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Here, here is what has escaped your notice. Uh, not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. The promise was given to the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are united with, to him by faith. Has the word of God failed? No, it hasn't failed. You've simply misunderstood to whom it was given. You've misunderstood to whom the object of the promise. The promise was the, given to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are one with Christ through faith and that spiritual birth, that spiritual circumcision. Paul declares it there in Galatians 3. They and they alone are the heirs of the Abrahamic promise. They and they alone are the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. So has the word of God failed? It doesn't fail. God has done exactly what he promised to do. Now, Paul doesn't leave it at that. That's his solution. He now gives us a little proof. A little proof beginning in verses, really in verse 7, right through to verse 13. And he appeals to two examples. Proof one, proof two. Example one, example two. Okay, I want, I want to demonstrate to you this simple premise. That uh, not all children of, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his physical offspring. I want to prove that to you. Let me prove it to you, first of all, by, by appealing to uh, Abraham's own sons. Right? He had a bunch of them. We'll only focus on two, Isaac and Ishmael. Okay, if the promise was given to Abraham and all his physical descendants, that means it must have also been given to Ishmael. But it wasn't given to Ishmael. God chose to bestow it upon Isaac, proving what? That not all are children of Abraham because they are his physical offspring. Proof number two, Isaac by Rebekah had two sons, twins, Names, Jacob and Esau. Well, they're Abraham's grandsons. Well, if the promise was given to all of Abraham's posterity based on the question of ethnicity, then Esau must be included in that promise. But he was not 
Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And Paul's point is simply this, and he's going to bring it to a summation. I know it's so difficult because he's not going to get there till the start of chapter 11, really. He's going to make the point that throughout the history of the nation of Israel, there has always been a remnant. There has always existed those chosen of God before the foundation of the world. Those who are children of promise. Those who are the true seed and children of Abraham. Because they are in the one who was yet to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now conversely, this side of the cross... Looking back, faith in the Lord Jesus, we are made one with him and we constitute together before the cross his people, after the cross his people, the one household of God. Two pieces of evidence. The second piece of evidence that Paul gives here is particularly interesting because he has a great deal to say about it. I want to draw your attention to six things he says about Jacob and Esau. Six features of their relationship with God. Six aspects, features, yes, of their relationship with God. Here it is, number one. God chooses to love Jacob and hate Esau. That's verse 13. As it is written, citation out of the book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that requires some explanation, doesn't it? It makes no sense to us. And it's actually quite horrendous unless we keep in view the fact that God loves people in one of two ways. There is God's general common love for his creatures, all of creation. He sends the sun and the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. That is his love as creator. It is a general common love for all. There is secondly, and this is made perfectly clear in scripture, there is God's special or particular love as a redeemer. We saw it back in chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, those upon whom he set this love before the foundation of the world, those whom he gave to the Lord Jesus before the foundation of the world, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Extremely important we maintain that distinction. In terms of the first God's general great love for all mankind as seen in his bountiful providence. In that sense, God most certainly loved Esau. He watched over Esau. He cared for Esau. He blessed Esau. Esau grew into a huge nation and occupied huge territory. God lavished such material blessings upon Esau. Esau, that the hardness of Esau's heart becomes absolutely startling in the light of God's goodness as creator toward him. He loved him. That's not the love Paul's speaking of here. He is speaking of God's special love as redeemer. You think of John's words as he expresses it in 1 John 3, 1. See Oh, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Who are the us? Not everyone, folks. Christians. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. I love children in two ways. Maybe more. I can think of two right now. Uh, you know, all these little ones here running around. I love them, 
right? No doubt about it. I love my daughters. Can you compare the two kinds of love? Can you compare my love for the children here at Grace Community Church with my love for my own flesh and blood, my daughters? No, that's all we're talking about, folks. God loves in two ways. There is his love as creator for all. There is his love as redeemer for his people, those who are in Christ. Because you see, his love for his people is his love for his son, in which we participate the moment we're made one with him by the Holy Spirit. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We're not talking about his common love as creator. We are speaking of his particular covenantal love as Savior, Redeemer. The first thing I want you to notice. Second is this. God's choice, Jacob and Esau, is between twins. Go back to verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. You see, I think, I think well, there's a number of reasons why Paul raises this example One flows from the first example. You see, in the first example, you have Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. You have Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael. Well, God chose Isaac because Isaac was the fruit of Abraham and Sarah's love. But Ishmael, well, that was the fruit of that illicit relationship between Abraham and Hagar. So the reason God chose Isaac was because of uh, the mothers and what was going on there, that whole dynamic. Someone could be tempted to think that way. Paul wants to lay it to bed, lay it to rest. So he said, well, let me give you another example. Jacob and Esau. Same mom, same dad. As a matter of fact, twins. For all intents and purposes, they're one. Absolutely the same. One in nature. Yet God chooses between them. Third thing I want you to notice is this. God's choice is before, prior to birth. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, What's Paul's point? It's clear. God's election, his choice of Jacob over Esau, is apart from merit. It's not on the basis of the fact that God looked down the corridor of time and saw, well, Jacob's going to turn out to be a wonderful young man, but Esau, oh, pity the man, uh, therefore I choose Jacob. It's not as though God, again, peered down the corridors of time. Well, I know at some moment in his journey, Jacob one night's going to be out in the desert staring under the stars, at the stars, and for some reason, he's just going to have a flash of brilliance and humility, and he's going to choose me. Well, because he's going to choose me, and I foresee that, therefore, I'm going to choose him. That is not Paul's point. It's irreconcilable with what Paul is saying. His point is this, God chooses between Jacob and Esau before birth, apart from works, apart from anything they ever did. God's choosing of Jacob over Esau, the reason was not found in either Jacob or Esau. That's Paul's point. Fourth thing he says is this, God's choice is contrary to the only thing that does make them different. What was that? Birth order. God's choice is contrary to the only thing that does differentiate Jacob and Esau, birth order. Comes out in the 12th verse. She was told, the older will serve the younger. 
just so that it's absolutely clear. No one can say, well, Esau was chosen because he was the older. Well, I'm going to completely reverse it, and I'm going to choose Jacob. Again, to emphasize, stress the fact that there is no distinguishing mark. There is no distinguishing feature. There is absolutely nothing in Jacob or Esau that determines this choice. It brings us now to the fifth thing I want you to notice. God's choice is rooted in his purpose of election. Verse 11, right from the outset. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order... Here's the reason. The reason does not reside in them. The reason resides in God. And here's where we lose ourselves in mystery. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. God has a reason. He must have had a reason in the case of Jacob and Esau. Paul's point is this. The reason did not reside in them. They were both sinners. They were both rebels. They were both obstinate when it came to the rebellion against the living God. God chose Jacob over Esau. He chose between twins. Identical, same nature. He chose before they, they had done anything. So it wasn't on the basis of merit. He chose before they were born. And he reversed the birth order just to emphasize this truth. That the reason for God's election resides in himself alone. Not in man. Here is the sixth thing I want you to notice. God's choice guarantees that works play no role in salvation. That's what he says, 11th verse, folks. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. I said it earlier, didn't I? That the doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. The doctrine, we love it. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is inseparable from the doctrine of election. Why? Let me explain it, put it to you by way of a question. The question each of us as believers must ask is this. Why am I saved? It's a good question. Why am I a Christian? Why am I saved? You want to belt out? Because I believed in the Lord Jesus. And I say a hearty amen. That's wonderful. You didn't really get my point. Why did you believe in the Lord Jesus? How do you answer that question? Why did I believe in the Lord Jesus? When, when, when so many don't, I can go in one of two directions. I can go in the direction in which Paul points us in chapters 8 and 9, and I can realize, well, I believed in the Lord Jesus because there was a time where God sent his Holy Spirit into my life, and he called me powerfully. He just shook me to the core, right? Showed me the truth of the gospel. Showed me the glory of God and the Lord Jesus. Showed me my, my, my sinfulness. 
and, and it all just kind of came together and I understood the gospel and I believed. But I need to go further back. Why did God call me like that? Well, I go further back and I realize it was because he predestined me. He predestined me to be conformed to the image and likeness of his son. But why? I need to go further back. And I step back into eternity. And I see that God foreknew me before the foundation of the world. In accordance with his divine decrees, he appointed this for me. And I am left in absolute holy wonder at the only reason I am saved and I stand before you as a Christian is God's sovereign grace. You either go on that way or you go the other way. There are only two ways to go. There really are. You can try to work out more than only two ways to go. I'm wrestling with that question. Why am I a Christian? I believed. Amen. You're right. We must believe in order to be saved. Well, I believed because I heard someone preaching the gospel. Yes, you most certainly did. It's important. We hear the word proclaimed, and it made sense to me. Ah, why did it make sense to you and countless others that made no sense? How do you account for it? How do you answer the question, why? Well, I don't know. It just all sort of came together and I understood it. So what are you saying? You're smarter than other people? Well, I just really all of a sudden saw my sin. So you're a little more humble than other people? Well, it just, you know, just there's so many things coming together. My grandma was witnessing to me. My kids were witnessing to me. I went to the church and I heard the preaching of the word and heard stuff on the radio and all these things were happening. And, you know, I just made, I just made a decision. Why did you make the decision? Do you understand the question I'm asking? Why? How do you account for it? The one road leads here. God's sovereign election, sovereign grace. The other road leads where? To a complete upheaval of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because if I believe for one moment, the ultimate reason, the final reason, the fundamental reason I am saved is because of something I did. My friend, I have reintroduced works into the equation through the back door. And I have undermined the very heart of the gospel. The doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. That we are saved by grace alone from beginning to end. Oh, it's a wonderful truth. Let me, let me just give you, a, a, like, put it in living color for you. No need to turn there. Out of the book of Acts. Paul is preaching in the city of Antioch, Acts 13, 38. Let it be known to you, he declares, that through this man, that is the Lord Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything. I declare that this morning as a minister of the gospel. I, I hope I make that perfectly clear. The Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ poured out his blood upon Calvary's cross, endured such torment of soul for sinners. And he did so that whosoever might believe in him would be saved. And he commands you, I command you in the name of the Lord, to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I warn you that if you don't, you will be held accountable. You do so of your own free will. You willingly reject this offer that is made to you, and you rain down condemnation upon yourself. But Luke, as he pens that account in Acts 13, he doesn't stop there. At the end of the chapter, he says this, this as many 
as we're appointed to eternal life? Belief. There's the cause. There's the reason. God's free, sovereign grace. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. We alone, oh please make no mistake. We alone are responsible for our condemnation. God alone is responsible for our salvation. The doctrine of election establishes the simple gospel. Let me affirm secondly as we conclude. The doctrine of election evokes praise and thanksgiving. Don't you just want to burst this morning? As you hear what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, apart from any merit, anything you've ever done, it evokes praise and thanksgiving. What do you have? Asks Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? All a gift. All a manifestation of God's grace and mercy towards you. This condition of heart alone cultivates humility. It compels service. It encourages forgiveness. And it promotes holiness. If I'm struggling in any of those areas, I know why. It's because I've lost sight of God's sovereign grace in Christ Jesus. If I'm struggling in any of those areas, I know what I need. You know what I need? I don't need a good pat on the back. I need a good dose of God's sovereign grace in Christ Jesus. And it compels me to get busy, to cultivate humility, to get involved and serve others, to encourage, encourages forgiveness in my attitude toward others. And it promotes the pursuit of holiness. Let me affirm thirdly, by way of conclusion, as we wrap it up, the doctrine of election emphasizes the grace of God. It emphasizes the grace of God. Oh, believer, hear this, please. God does not say to you he loves you because you're usable, wonderful, or adorable. Praise God, because none of you are, nor am I. He does not say to us, I love you because you're usable, profitable, wonderful, so adorable. He says to us, I love you. Because I love you. That's it, folks. I love you. Because I love you. We sing it here. On such love my soul still ponder. Love so great, so rich, so free. Say, while lost in holy wonder. Why, O oh Lord, such love to me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Grace shall reign eternally. Our God in heaven above, may you be glorified this day through the proclamation of your word and the magnification of your wondrous grace towards sinners. We thank you for this portion of your word. Even now we ask you to open it to every mind, every heart of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gathered here. And we do pray that by your spirit and in accordance with your sovereign will, you might be well pleased to work in our midst powerfully this day, encouraging your people and for any unbelievers, bringing them face to face with their sin, their rebellion toward you 
and their need of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.